Good morning. Let's go ahead and get started. And uh, the next person that comes to the door, let's applaud their arrival. Celebrate their being late to class. Give thanks. So let's go ahead and pray. Our God, to you we turn now and we thank you for your goodness. Father, would you guide us in these moments? We want to be a people that are attentive to your word and, and uh, being under the direction of your spirit. So be our teacher now. Guide us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so we're going to look at the book of Philippians today. And uh, let me just tell you that's how she goes around that side. And, uh, this is if we don't have it now. Okay, now that we have the notes passed out. We want to look at the letter to the Philippians today. And we call the letter to the Philippians really the letter of joy. The letter of joy. We could read about the events of how the, the church started in Philippi in Acts chapter 16. In fact, why don't we go ahead and turn there? First, we're going to turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 16. In your student notes, you're going to turn to page 39. So we're in Acts chapter 16. Paul is with Silas. And he has a vision to come to Macedonia. And that means that there's going to be a change in direction. They're now moving from Asia Minor. So you see Ephesus there. That's Asia Minor, what we might call Turkey. They're now going to move across the sea to what we know as Greece. And so Paul receives this vision from a Macedonian man saying, come over and preach the gospel here. So that's part of the backdrop, and then we, we pick it up in verse 11. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi. So I don't have all of those cities listed on there, but they went up the coast around Ephesus so they could find a place to cross, and they crossed over to Philippi. And from there to Philippi, verse 12, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. Now keep in mind, this is a Greek, this is the country of Greece. Most of the cities would be Greek-speaking. They would have their Greek gods and goddesses. So Luke points out that this is a Roman colony. This is a city that has affection or attachment to the city of Rome. So there would be more Latin or Roman uh, practices, including the names of the gods. Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony, we remained in that city some days. 
And on the Sabbath day, we went outside to the outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So the city of Philippi, located at, was on this Greek island, was a major east-to-west commercial point, particularly across the country of Greece. It was like a highway, as it were, across the Roman Empire. It's linked to Philippi, which you might expect, uh, to uh, um, Philip II of Macedonia. Now, who was Philip II of Macedonia? You don't know, but this is what you do know now. He was the father of Alexander the Great. Okay, so you can see the, the connection then of where the city got its name from the great Greek emperor Alexander. Um, it was The region itself, as I said, was Greek-speaking, but Philippi was a Roman colony and would have spoken more Latin. Its patterns would have been more after the city of Rome. Remember, in the, the vast Roman Empire, so I want you to imagine the western part of Rome and Empire, the eastern part of the Roman Empire. The western part was Latin-speaking, the eastern part was Greek-speaking. And then as the church progressed, those main points where the church had headquarters, if you will, began to break away, where the western side went more to Rome, eventually becoming the Roman Catholic Church, and the eastern side had its own bishops and eventually morphed into the Greek Orthodox Church. Okay, so that's kind of the historical background. It took many centuries for that to come about, but I just want you to have an understanding of what we're dealing with. So if you are a Latin-speaking city in the middle of a Greek-speaking area, there's going to be some tension there. There's going to, there's going to be a clash of culture, uh, a clash of language. So, we just read Acts chapter 16, and this is around 51 AD, where Paul sets out on this missionary journey. Can you read that? I know it's really, I should have made the font a little brighter. Is that, is that readable? I'll try to write it next. So some of the information I have up there you have in your notes. Uh, Paul. <laughs> Paul visited on his second missionary journey. And we've just read about what's happened. Now we could go on and read what went on in the rest of the story in Philippi. But we'll get to that. Okay. We started reading in verse 11. We stopped in about verse 15. But it's fun to read the rest of the book of Acts chapter 16 because we'll get more of the story of what happened there. We'll get to that in some, some time. So think about what's going on before this event. Paul has been working in Asia Minor. And now he has a vision given to him by God saying, move on. And so now this is an important point in what we call the history of redemption or the advancement of the gospel. Can you copy the notes? Please. Okay. Okay. This is an important moment in the history of redemption because now it's moving on to a new area, a new language group, a new type of people. And 
we see that God is the one that's intentionally moving his people into place. So, um, really with the arrival of the gospel in Philippi, we can say that the gospel comes to Europe for the first time. So this is historic when you look at the history of continents and how God has worked. With this dream of God, the gospel is now beginning to penetrate Europe. Now, it possibly got to Rome before that, so there's a caveat there. But certainly on the main European continent, this was the first time that a gospel preacher has arrived. So we can imagine Paul then doing what he would do. Okay? He would try to find a synagogue because that's really where he would want to begin preaching the gospel, but he doesn't find a synagogue. Okay? That tells us then there's not a huge Jewish presence in the city. Because Jewish custom was, in order to form a synagogue, you needed to have ten Jewish men. If you can't find a synagogue in the city, what does that tell us? There's less than ten. So, what would happen in those contexts is God-fearing Jews who didn't have a synagogue would look for a body of water. Typically a river, because they thought that's where they could practice some of the offerings and the sacrifices and have water and things like that. So that's what Paul, he knows that. He knows something about the culture. He says, well, no synagogue here. Let's find a river. And so he goes outside the city. He finds a river. And we see that God has prepared all of this, right? They find a group of women worshiping there. And then very clearly God is at work because we are told in verse 14, the Lord opened Lydia's heart. So this is all God's design. This is all God's doing. And Paul doesn't get to spend a lot of time in Philippi. If we read the rest of the story, we find that Paul has been thrown into prison. While he's in prison, he and Silas are doing what they're supposed to because they know their Bibles. Though they're in prison, though they're beaten, what are they doing? They're giving thanks, right? In all things, in all circumstances, they're singing hymns. And all of a sudden, there's this dramatic earthquake. The chains fall off. The Philippian jailer gets converted. And other members of his family. Okay? So even though Paul wasn't there for very long... That's still quite a trick. We would like every missionary trip to be that adventurous in a short period of time. When the gospel is preached, there's more miracles that are shown. More importantly, there's souls that are saved. And now we have the beginnings of a church. Um, and they have to get out of town. Right? They don't want them there. Uh, Paul, they beat him. They say, oh, what were you doing? Uh, and then it says, um, he says, you've beaten us as Roman citizens. You didn't have a right to do it. You must come and apologize to us. We're going to stand up for our rights. This is one time where Paul stands up for his rights as a Roman citizen. says, you must treat me according to the laws of the land. You did not. You wrongly imprisoned me. You beat me. Now I want an official apology. And he gets one. He gets an official escort out of town. This was a public shaming of the government officials. Because they knew they shouldn't have acted that way. But they still want him out of town. So, in a very short time, he comes in, he preaches the gospel. Uh, some women get saved. He gets thrown in prison. There's an earthquake. The jailer gets saved. There's disruption in the city. Like, we want you out. Oh, but you're going to show me my respect as a citizen. Now, that's a whole other issue that we can look at one time. When does a Christian use his rights and when does he not? Because at times, Paul made use of his rights as a Roman citizen. And at times he did not. 
And so what were the principles that guided his decision? And we can look at that, but the short answer is whatever promulgated the gospel was the deciding factor. And he wanted to make sure that it was the gospel that was the principle, not his personal preference or what, because of whatever cultural uh, rights he thought he was entitled to. So it's a, it's a good learning lesson perhaps for us today. One, so, one of the things that's really important about this whole trip there, yeah. Europe, it's us. It's us. So you think about, yeah, obviously it's spreading about Europe, right? And most of us in this room have some type of connection and heritage to Europe. Not all of us, but most of us, right? Yeah, of course. We can look back in history and see God does all things well. He is guiding this. Because he said, don't go here. Paul said, I want to go there. The Lord stopped me. I wanted to go here, but the Lord stopped me. So I went there. God is the one that is directing the paths of his people. Okay? So, he keeps in contact with the church here. Um, he visits them on his third missionary journey. We have that in Acts chapter 20. Um, it seems as if Luke stayed back behind in Philippi. Because the pronouns change. You may remember when we talked about the book of Acts. Sometimes Paul or sorry, Luke uses the pronouns we and us. And sometimes he uses the pronouns they and them. Paul leaves Philippi, it seems like the pronouns changed to them, they left. So it seems as if Paul, I'm sorry, Luke stayed behind, perhaps as the representative of Paul to kind of shepherd the church uh, while it's going on for a while. Okay? Um, we learn in different places that this was a church that supported Paul in his ministry. And we'll look at that. And we'll talk about what the importance of supporting missionaries. But we'll also look at they were collecting for the poor. Those believers in Jerusalem who were suffering because of famine. They were Jewish believers. And Gentile churches are giving to show their blessing across the ethnic boundaries, if you will, to show that the gospel is what unites us. And so it's a return, as it were, for the favor that um, they have received by getting the gospel. So that's kind of more the background of what is happening in Philippi. Um, I've not been to the city of Philippi today to know exactly what it looks like. I, in fact, I haven't been to Greece yet. I really, if we've got one more international trip in us that doesn't include Belgium, <laughs> I want it to be Greece. Because um, I want to see where Paul walked we crossed over. I've been to a couple of the cities in Turkey, and I've obviously lived in the Middle East, so I'd like to go to Greece and see some of the history there. But the Lord may have other ideas, so it's not a requirement for fulfillment in Christian life, right? We just walk the way the Lord wants us to walk. So it's a little bit of the background, and we know that it was written by Paul. Never really been in a lot of discussion, although some try to say, well, the language seems a bit different, and maybe... You know, we don't get into those games. We just take the word, starts right away in verse 1 and says what? Letter from Paul. He's the author. So, he's writing from prison. So, if the gospel first arrived in 51 AD, when he preached there, he's writing in 62 AD this letter. So, there's about a decade, okay? About a decade after the church was planted, and now the church has been growing, but if you study the book of Philippians, there are some problems there. Some problems in their understanding of who Christ is, some problems in their fellowship, some problems in how to understand difficulty and suffering. And Paul's going to talk about joy, even in the midst of suffering. Okay, so that's what we're looking at. One of the four prison epistles that he wrote. Remember what the prison epistles are? 
Colossians is one. Ephesians. Ephesians. Philippians. Philippians. And? Philemon, or Philemon. Okay, those are the four prison epistles that he wrote about the same time, which is why at times you see similarity in context. In context. Okay? Any questions on that so far? If you find a good uh, introduction to the New Testament, some of those details will be in there, but it's good for us to summarize things that we're looking at. He's writing um, it from Rome. He makes references to the things of Rome, including the Roman guard. He gives reference and greeting to Caesar's household in chapter 4. So it seems that he is writing from Rome, probably in the events that correspond with the end of the book of Acts. When he's in prison at Rome, he's, he will write these letters, including the book of Philippians. Okay? About 62 AD, from Rome. Now we have a basic outline. It's very basic. This is a book that, in a sense, is easy to outline, and in a sense, it's not easy to outline. But he does have very specific things that he wants to address, okay? Particularly, the role of suffering in the advancement of the gospel, where he talks about all the guards here know that I am in prison because I'm suffering for the gospel. And he rejoices because the gospel is advancing. Because he's preaching the gospel to all these guards that he's shackled to for hours at a time. And as they rotate the guards that are shackled to him, he's preaching the gospel to them the whole time. Probably was not the prime uh, service opportunity to get tied up to the Apostle Paul. <laughs> okay? And yet he was very effective and fruitful in what he did. And he's teaching us to give... Thanks, right? Although the words he uses is rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And we saw this morning how praise and giving thanks go together all throughout the scriptures. So he's giving thanks for what has happened. And now we say because the gospel is true, this is how you live it out. We have great deep theology of Christ in this section from 127 to 230. And we'll look at one of those passages because it's, just, it's one of our favorite passages in all the New Testament, Philippians 2. Okay, that's in this section of Greek theology. Um, and then he's going to say, look out for false teachers. He's ran into a few along the way. And he knew of a few even in Philippi. Okay. Now I think Philippians in a sense serves as kind of a missionary letter. He's talking about what has happened. He's giving them some instruction, some of the trials. Talks about prayers. And then he also talks about the fact that this is a church that has financially supported him. And he's thankful. He gives thanks to them for their help. Recognizes that God has provided for him in, in part through the church in Philippi and with other churches. And he wants them to know that they are partnership in the gospel. In fact, that word partnership is an important word in the book of Philippians. Partnership in the gospel. Both in the preaching of the gospel and the preparation of preaching the gospel and those that give, those that go, and those that send. And of course, everyone that prays. Okay? So, that's more uh, structure. The outline is even bigger. 
If you have been around for a couple years, you know that this is the letter that I started with in my time here at, at Orville and Noble Free Church because it has been so meaningful to me that I wanted to start with the message of joy. And you may recall that the sermon series was entitled Joy for the Journey. That all of us are on a journey of some sort or another and that joy is to be something that should be overflowing from our lives because we recognize the great truths of who Christ is. We recognize that even in suffering we can give thanks. We recognize that when we're in prison we can give thanks uh, because God is good and the gospel is going forward. So when we look at one of the themes, we're not surprising then that joy is one of them. At least 14 times in this short letter, joy is mentioned, either in verb form or in noun form. Okay? Rejoice. I, get, I rejoice. Uh, there is joy. The different forms of the word joy, rejoice, rejoicing, whatever. At least 14 times in just four short chapters. And we rejoice in that. So yes, we, we have joy in the Lord and joy in the journey, and we should be a joyful people. Um, and I, I I hope that we're preparing ourselves that come what may we can rejoice and be joyful. It doesn't come to our, us naturally. It's something that comes only as we, we dive deep into Christ, who is the ultimate expression of joy. Um, the fruit of the Spirit is joy. We're completely dependent upon God to produce that joy, but it's also a mindset that we decide as God gives me strength, I will rejoice. I will express uh, in joy even when things are not so fun or easy, which all of us are going to go through hardships in various measures. And uh, in my reading schedule of the Bible, I, I do a... Um, chronological reading method. And recently I read through just the, the book of Acts again. And I was just struck by the disciples when they were beaten or when they were imprisoned, what their response was. They rejoiced that they were considered worthy to suffer for the gospel. And I thought, what a whip I am, because I'm going to try to avoid the suffering if I can. But here they, they rejoice that they're counted worthy to suffer for the cause of Christ. And that's, there's nothing more important than that. And I hope that we can build within our own lives that come what may. If it's for the sake of the gospel, that we would rejoice that we were counted worthy to suffer. Okay. The second major theme is suffering, right? 
And <laughs> we can learn from Paul. He went through a little more than we did. Um, I don't know if you have any comments at this point because I keep repeating myself, but there's the idea that there is going to be suffering along the way, right? And, uh, but the, the gospel has realities, the gospel has responsibilities, there's blessings in the gospel, right? He who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. That's the reality of the gospel. God begins it, God perfects it, God completes it. That's one of the realities. We have great hope. But, the re but then the reality also is as we live for the gospel, we can also have um, this idea of to live is Christ and to die is gain. Do we consider it gain? Do we understand what that gain is? Yeah. Of, of being in His presence. Um... And yet Paul is willing to suffer. He comes to a point as he's writing to them, it's easier for me if I go, because I'm going to be with Christ. But for your benefit, I need to stay, so that you'll be encouraged. And even while I'm staying here, I'm going to preach the gospel. And so it's a win-win, win-win-win for Paul. How can he lose? If he remains, he preaches Christ. And he has the joy of suffering for Christ. And people come to Christ. If he doesn't remain, he's with Christ. So it's all encompassing. To live as Christ and to die as gain. And that's one of the realities of the gospel. But then there's also the foot soldier work that takes place. We need to go and preach the gospel. And we need to have partners in the gospel. And there needs to be prayer for a gospel presentation. Okay? So all of these realities and responsibilities of the gospel, because it will then suffer or advance through suffering. We talked about that a week ago as we looked at uh, this, this movie, The Insanity of God. And how impressed we can be by studying church history. The gospel does not advance through the sword. The gospel does not advance through the economic machinations of men. The gospel advances through the faithful preaching of the gospel of servants who are willing to give their lives for the cause of Christ. And God is more than able to advance it through the means that He has ordained. And so we should be content with that. That ultimately it all comes back to who God is and what He does. And the gospel will advance and is advancing, whether there is political freedom or not, the gospel is advancing because people are preaching the gospel. Um, Paul recognizes that. Even in a Roman prison, he said, I rejoice because the gospel is advancing. Basically what he's saying is, I'm in chains, but God's word is not in chains. And so we can just keep preaching it and letting it out. Preaching it and letting it out and trusting God for the results. And... I, um, a number of years ago, but it's not that long ago, but about 10 years ago, when I came back from a missionary trip, when we were on furlough, and I told my senior pastor, I said, Pastor, you need to start preparing your people for persecution because it's coming. I think it's going to come in different forms, but I believe the Western Church is going to reach a period of suffering. All the signs are there. Are we ready for it? Are we preparing for it? Are we just hoping to have an escapism that will avoid it? Or are we prepared to rejoice in Christ and go through it? Because we have no promise that we'll be delivered from it. Every book of the New Testament says the church will be persecuted. 
Every book of the New Testament says there'll be false teachers. So every book of the New Testament reminds us that we need to combat false teachers and we need to be prepared to suffer. And the church has been a suffering church for 20 centuries or more. So why should we have the privilege of missing out if it's such a blessing to suffer for Christ? I don't know his timing on things, but I'm not going to presume upon his grace. I'm going to prepare as he guides me. He says, be ready. Because to live for is Christ Pastor, and to die is gain. Sorry. Yeah. Um, what kind of torture do you think that we're going to go through as a church? I think there's going to be economic pressure. Yeah. I think there's going to be political pressure. I think there's going to be the possibility of things that are said from the pulpit will be declared illegal. Mm-hmm. There are already pastors in Canada that are in prison right now because they preached on biblical view of marriage. Okay? So we must not think that somehow we're going to be immune from that. Okay? And all I'm, all I'm saying is that, uh, you know, what could be a greater privilege than to be able to share in Christ's suffering so that people would hear about love and gospel? Okay? I don't know that. I don't, have, I don't have inside information like I know what kind of plots are going to come in. I just see the signs in the courts, in the government, the different policies that are being put into place, and social pressure, and the constant bombardment of media messaging. Okay? So, I pray for awakening in our country. I pray for revival. I pray for national repentance. I pray for the church to wake up. But I also pray that the gospel would go forth. We live here on this earth for such a smidgen of time. And eternity is long. So let's live for eternity. You know, because that's what Paul would do. That's what the apostles did. That's what the church has done for 20 centuries. Let's learn from our brothers and sisters that have counted it all joy to even suffer for the cause of Christ. That's the letter of Paul. In the midst of suffering... There's joy. In the midst of suffering, there's gospel fruit. In the midst of suffering, there's partnership. When we keep our eyes on Christ, we can go through anything. Because we know what awaits us. Okay? As we look, we see that the gospel is the work of God and the work of man. Uh, What do I mean by that? Well, God, of course, is able to do all things. Of course. He's all-powerful. He began the work in us. And He will continue the work in us. And He will complete the work in us. But somehow He also is pleased to use instruments by which that happens. In other words, people. So we hear the proclamation of the gospel from evangelists and preachers. We are encouraged in the ways of God by teachers and brothers in Christ, sisters in Christ, who teach and instruct us in the way of God. Okay? We get encouragement when times are difficult. We get support when we need it. Prayers, encouragement, uh, time. But in all of that, God is the one that's weaving it all together. Ultimately, God is the one that's in control. We can trust Him. Um, he can meet all of our needs. Right? Paul rejoices and says in Philippians 4.19, For my God is able to meet all of your needs in Christ Jesus. Yes, he is able to meet them all in Christ Jesus. He who has just received from the Philippians and is thanking them for their support. So he recognizes that God has human instruments that he uses, even as God is in control of it all. 
That's good for us then. That means we need to be active in our Christian lives. Right? We need to be out engaging with people and not hiding out from them. Uh, Jesus didn't just throw down laser darts from heaven. He came and lived among us. Ate our food. Walked our paths. Got to know us. And all of our messes. And lived with us. He wants to continue to do that as He ministers to His people today. That we enter into others' circumstances and situations. That's how He will show who He is and His love. Okay? So we see that balance in Paul. So, verses we know well. Chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Come. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Active verb, action, energy. Apply the gospel to your lives. Put it to death the deeds of the flesh. Pray hard. Praise hard. Preach hard. Serve. Work it out. It doesn't mean earn it. It means apply it. It means bring it into every aspect of your life. Bring your thinking under the control of the gospel. Your, your emotions, your actions, your plans. Okay? Comma. Verse 13, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. It's what J.I. Packer refers to, and actually it's Tim Hansel refers to it as holy sweat. But J.I. Packer, when he talks about the holiness that we are to be and aspire to as Christians, say, the harder we aspire to be like Christ, the more we know God is at work in us. Because He's energizing us to memorize the Word. He's energizing us to preach. He's energizing us to pray. He's energizing us to serve. Perhaps He's energizing us to even suffer. And then He goes on from there. Verse 13. God is working in you. And then verse 14 is now applying verse 12. Where it says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Is that something God does? Does He do everything without grumbling or disputing? Well, of course, He doesn't dispute or grumble. But is He the one that's not disputing and not grumbling on our behalf? Or are we the ones that are not grumbling? We're supposed to be the ones to not grumble, not dispute. That we might be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom we shine as lights in the world. Even in verse 17, He says, If I'm to be poured out as a drink offering... For on the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Even if I have to give up my life that you might have the gospel, I do it joyfully. When's the last time we said that to other people? I love Christ so much. And I want you to know Christ so much, I will give it all up and die so that you will know Christ. That's what he's saying. I don't see that in too many letters that go out from one believer to another. Okay? And I'll go out in mine. And so I have to be reminded of these things. That we live in community so that the community is being brought to maturity. And then he says we're to oppose false teachers. In our day and age, we don't like to talk like that. Because what does it mean to oppose something? What's that? Intolerance. It means to say there are wrong ideas. 
Yeah. There are wrong thoughts. There's wrong actions. There's wrong teachings. And you're bothering me. Any what? And you're bothering me imposing. Yes. You know? We're imposing. It does. Right. <laughs> See how the gospel always just leaves us uncomfortable <laughs> so that we're dependent upon the Lord? And if you feel uncomfortable, you understand the message. Because it's saying what you think it's saying. Tell people their ideas are wrong. So that, what do we do then when we find a friend who's listening to a teacher that is false? Do we have the courage to love them enough to say, stop listening to that person? And to give them better alternatives? Or do you just go to somebody else and say, oh, I wish so-and-so would stop listening to that teacher? Okay. Paul actually says oppose. Call out. Point out the, 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 where they're wrong. Point out the weaknesses. Point out the, the dangers. Because he knows it's serious. There's only one gospel. There's only one. He's willing to suffer and go to prison for it. Defend that gospel. Oppose false believers. There's so much we could say about this book. It's, it's just a wonderful blessing from God. But maybe I'll just pause there and say, what are some things that maybe you've gleaned or picked up over the years as you've looked at the book to the Philippians? I just saw something and another point that could be on there. Okay. Uh, unity in Christ. Unity in Christ. So uh, when he uh, starts out in chapter 2, okay. um, verse 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but humility count others more significant than yourselves. And then chapter 4, he's talking to Utica and uh, two women. <laughs> or to agree in the Lord. Yeah. Rodia and Syntyche. That's one of those easy words. Yeah. You know, probably on the top ten of your grandchildren. Right? My next grandchild is Syntyche. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> unity. But it was unity. One. What? In Christ. In not, Christ. Not like tolerating one another. Unity in the truth. Yes. Ultimately, it's only the truth in Christ. Right. Look at some of the coalitions that are formed even in our larger culture today. I realize the gospel is for more than just American culture, but we have to live it out in American culture. So, globally, we have this movement called LGBTQ. And it's, it's a fake community. It's a fake unity because they can't even agree among themselves. Because which letter takes priority? The L or the T? Or the Q or the B? Or the plus. Okay? And they're fighting among themselves, which is why ultimately this whole uh, structure of lies is going to come tumbling down. Because it can't sustain itself. Okay? And they're fighting among themselves. And so we who are standing on the truth with humility, 
with gratitude, we must preach the truth. Because the lies are so readily accepted, it's almost like we're the weird ones for not accepting the lies. But we're tapped into that which is true, which is eternal. And so who's going to be the weird ones one day? Is it going to be those that tapped into the eternal truth? Or is it going to be those that ran after other things? Paul was willing to suffer in prison for those things. There's only, only Christ. There's no other way. He, the, God, the Romans had their gods and their goddesses and their practices and their philosophers and all these things. And he said, it's all about Christ, folks. And he's willing to be in prison for it. Yeah. I love in chapter 2 this picture we have of this hymn that preceded Paul. Uh, Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Um, And he steps down displaying uh, Christ's humility and then walks back up Christ's exaltation uh, in this poetic form uh, which is apparently a hymn that Paul is quoting that was already in circulation uh, before Paul even was on the scene. Um, there's, There's such poetic beauty and such philosophical beauty looking at who Christ is um, and how we can follow his example and what that has in store for us. Yeah. And it's right after that. This name, this one will be exalted above everything. Right after that he says, therefore, work out your salvation. Because of the greatness of Christ, work out your salvation. Because God is working in you. So don't complain. Don't dispute. Live as light. Good theology and good application go together. Yeah. I'm just wondering, um, as we look at Paul, he almost makes it look easy to suffering. Yeah. Like he, he made it. And he made it. we look at the, the movie, and it's scary. They, they made it. I listened to this interview of Andrew Marston in Turkey, and he's like, I look at Paul and I failed. Yeah. In prison, he goes, I considered suicide. I was depressed. So, how do we prepare to be like Paul and make it? Well, I think we can also see glimpses of Paul when he is down, when he's experiencing probably depression that comes from his serious pain. We see his longing. We see his forlorn attitude of being rejected by everyone. We can see very real human emotion here where he was not just pie in the sky and then you die. He he did recognize the realities. He said, and I went through all these things and I would do it again. But did he cry out in pain? Of course he did. He, He says, I bear on my body the marks of Christ Jesus. I have been beaten. I have been ruined. Physically, he was pretty much done with. I mean, uh, we have very little information of what he looked like. The information we have is he was hunched over. He had scars. 
He, uh, he walked with a limp. You know, he was a beaten man. But he had tapped into the, 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 the depth of the love of Christ for himself. And that's what persevered through. But he didn't, he wasn't just up here emotionally overcoming all, all the time. We, we do see him wrestling with his emotions. He's angry at times. He's, he's incredulous with his church and he's frustrated with that one. And he says, get here soon, I'm cold in another one. You know, so we do see glimpses of his humanity in the midst of suffering. And the Lord also appeared to him. If you look at the number of times, there were three or four times the Lord appeared to him. Right? So maybe the Lord decided to do a supernatural work and just appeared to him and encouraged him to say, I have other people in this town. Stand firm. Or you will go to Rome. You, you preached here, you're going to preach in Rome. And it was like at those moments, perhaps when he's struggling with despair, God appears to him and says, I got you. Okay? So if we put all that bigger picture together, we do see a much more very human Paul. Well, one that also very much aspires to glorify Christ. But it's a good remark, yeah. I was just, one of my favorite sections is in Philippians 4 because I'm a, I'm a stressor, I'm an anxious person. And, it, you know, and it basically, he walks through, like, how not to be anxious. And he, and he talks about focusing on what is honorable, just, pure, lovely, you know, and that, I just always appreciate that because I'm like, I'm stressed out or I'm worried about something. And I'm like, oh, let's go with it back to this portion this it was very angry. On that same vein, when people want to tell me ugly stories, especially stories about animals, I go to that verse and I say, I think about things that are lovely, pure, honorable, commendable. I can't talk about that stuff. So I think Philippians is wonderful to teach us what we can concentrate on. And so that would be part of work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Discipline your mind. Think about those things that are good and holy and pure and lovely and truthful. Which means then, put away the things that are harmful and blind and deceptive and anger and angry and whatever, right? Which means that there's an ongoing battle that goes on. Because the fact that we're called to think about these things means we are tempted to think about these things. So when Paul says at the end of the letter, I thank you, you've given to me, I'm now fully supplied. What he's saying is, I wasn't always recently, but you've given to me. So we can, we can see the, the emotions that go into that, but also it's the very practicality of the gospel for Paul. Okay? Um, where are we? <laughs> Exposed false teachers. So what are some of the things that are unique to the book of Philippians? Well, Paul is happy with this church. I don't, I don't find him rebuking this church. He rebukes the church in Galatia. He rebukes the church in Corinth. He has some words of instruction for Timothy. He seems happy with this church, except for a few things he's got to point out. You've got some sisters that aren't getting along. And by the way, you guys should work on your unity. But by and large, he's pleased with this church. And then, as was pointed out, there is perhaps a, a hymn here. I wrote a paper in seminary. It was on Colossians 1, which is a very similar idea. 
And I came to the conclusion that that was not a hymn, that that was Paul's original writings. But I haven't looked enough at Philippians 2. I think it's generally accepted that just as we see glimpses of creeds, confessions of faith in the New Testament, I think this is one of the early hymns that the church sang and that Paul incorporated into his writings. Um, of course Paul would, because isn't he the one that said, speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs? So he's going to apply his own teaching, right? By even using some psalms or some creeds or whatever that became part of what we have in the New Testament. Because we, we don't say that just the hymns themselves are inspired. They're inspired only when they show up in Scripture. Okay? But we do see the importance of hymns for teaching us if they're faithful to the Scriptures. So we have the Christ hymn, this beautiful hymn of the exaltation of Christ. We have joy. Which he talked about. Only in Philippians is Paul this disqualification to boast and say, look, these false teachers here, they think they're the cat's meow. Well, let's compare it to my pedigree. And so he does. And then what does he say after he has said all these things? I'm out of my mind. Huh? I'm out I'm of my mind to say these things. Well, he says I count it rubbish. <laughs> Which, it's a certain type of rubbish he's talking about here. And, uh, yeah. He says, look, comparison to Christ, it doesn't matter what my degree is. It doesn't matter what my education is. It doesn't matter my family name. It doesn't matter what tribe I came from. It doesn't matter my social standing. It doesn't matter whether I was the greatest servant in the temple or not. Compared to Christ, all that stuff is rubbish. I need to learn. Do I really consider everything rubbish compared to knowing the glory of Christ? And this is a personal letter. There's so many things that if we didn't have the book of Philippians, we'd miss out on. And so it's another one of those gifts of God the Holy Spirit. Each book, of course, that we know is a, a gift from God the Holy Spirit. Aren't you glad you have the book of Philippians? That we understand some things about the gospel. Understand some things about prayer. To understand some things about fellowship and how we get along with one another. To understand some things about suffering. To understand some things about partnership of the gospel. I just, I'm so thankful that God gave us the book of Philippians. I think it's been one that has encouraged believers since the beginning. It will continue to encourage believers until Christ comes back. The date only known to Him. Well, with all of that, I think these two verses sum up the book. I've already read Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Work out your salvation because God is working in you. And then rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice. And I uh, appreciate the testimony of just how this book has helped in, in prayer and overdoing the, the stresses of life because I think all of us can relate to that. You know, I, I struggle with do not be anxious about anything, verse 6. And yet this is the same Paul who said, I am anxious for the churches. So what is Paul saying? To be anxious or not to be anxious? And the answer is yes. Right? What is he anxious about? The gospel. 
He wants Christians growing in their faith. He wants churches to be strong. He wants the gospel to go forward. He's anxious to see that happening. That the anxieties of what happens to him, his physical body, bread, clothes, prison, no prison, he's not going to be anxious about that. But in everything, with prayer and thanksgiving, he makes his request known to God. And I think, how often do I do the contrary? How often am I anxious about what I will eat and what I will drink and what I will wear? And I'm not concerned about the loss of the Christ. And Paul said it's the exact opposite. I'm anxious to see the gospel move forward and I'm not so worried about my needs because I have a God who takes care of me. My God will supply all my needs. <coughs> that, that preaches to me. I think it preaches to us. This hits us right where we live. Do we live in proper anxiety, as it were, right? Under the Lordship of Christ. So, Jim, would you close us out and lead us in the song again? Do we want to do it in a round? Rejoice in the Lord always. Is it, can we do it in a round? We've got a choir director and we've got a song leader. Thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. Father, how beautiful your gospel is. Thank you for the joy that we can have in Christ. 